Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where the events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. My name is John Keeley. This is the 377th show of ROI. And our noted guest for today's show is Dr. James Hutchison, professor of English at the Citadel who is going to talk to us about his book, Ernest Hemingway, A New Life. The history buffs for today's show are Rick Sweet and, and Broders. The show's theme song is titled Kayla's Theme, which is written and performed by Mark Zapzattel. And our producer and engineer is, as always, Mr. Dave Baker. This is the opening segment of the show called Farouk Dinarin, and today we'll be talking about the book, Ernest Hemingway, A New Life, with Dr. Jim Hutchinson. Professor of English at the Citadel. Welcome to the show, Jim. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So can you give us a little bit of background? I read a, uh, a review that said that Ernest Hemingway was the most written about author in America. So what inspired you to write a book about somebody who's already been written about so much? Well, that's true. Hemingway, at least among American authors, probably is the most written about uh, figure in in, uh, in literature, uh, and it certainly was you know a daunting task you know in the sense that I asked myself why you know what am I gonna what I what am I gonna say here why am I actually doing that but it also stemmed from I guess you know twenty five plus years of reading teaching and writing and thinking about Hemingway uh, and being a uh, a biographer sort of by trade that is most of the books that I've written have been biographical in nature. Uh, I had, uh, you know, read avidly all of the biographical work that had been written on Hemingway, and I really was not satisfied with it. Uh, I, I felt that uh, it was sway-backed sort of in one direction or the other. That is, you know, people either um, saw him as a, uh, uh, you know, a not very nice person who was, a, you know, an alcoholic and a womanizer and was, you know, kind of petty with his fellow writers and so on, uh, or they saw him as, you know, kind of, you know, the, the, uh, they elevated him to the pantheon of, you know, literary gods, and he could do no wrong. And, you know, some of the early biographies of Hemingway read almost like hagiography. So I, I just felt that uh, what was needed was a more balanced sort of middle-of-the-road approach, and that's what I tried to do in the book. Okay. Um, I, uh, Jim, I took a class in literature decades ago at Iowa State, and I had a prof who I had the greatest amount of respect for said, and this is this person's interpretation, that the uh, 19th century was Mark Twain and that Ernest Hemingway was very much the bridge of America from uh, 1900 to about, you know, 1945. And right. the way the professor taught the I'm not, I loved a whole bunch of other authors as well, but I could see where this bridge was constructed in the argument. Would you agree with that, uh, disagree, or how would you interpret that statement? Yeah, no, I think that that's a very apt characterization. Um, you know, Hemingway was, in a certain sense, you know, the 20th century American writer. In some ways, he was the 20th century. I mean, you know, he took the uh, both the mores of the 19th century as well as the uh, 
the the stylistic, you know, kind of excesses in writing of the 19th century, and he swept them into the gutter. You know, I mean, it was just a, you know, a clean sweep uh, all the way, you know, down the road, and he, and he basically reinvented uh, uh, the novel and reinvented, uh, you know, the the language, you know, for uh, for the 20th century. Okay. Okay. Um, so yeah, go ahead, John. I was going to say, so how would you compare Twain and Hemingway in this bridge? I mean, uh, and that's what that's what my professor sat there and said. There's, they're almost like a parallel in their own ways. How would you compare mm-hmm. those two? Mm-hmm. I think that uh, that Mark Twain and Hemingway are comparable. Uh, you know, certainly in their quote unquote Americanness, you know, their uh, their anatomization of the American character. Uh, they created, you know, each of them created enduring American. Uh, uh, fictional characters like, you know, Huck Finn and uh, Jake Barnes with Hemingway and uh, Puddin' Ed Wilson with Mark Twain. And, you know, you could go on and on with uh, The Old Man in the Sea, you know, Santiago the Fisherman. Um, but I, in terms of, you know, comparing them as well, you know, I, I think that there's uh, a language comparison as well. You know, they, they both were very uh, uh, set on uh, you know, using and fashioning, you know, the language in order to reflect the realities of the times. And that may, might seem like a, you know, a, an obvious statement today in 2020. Uh, but again, when you look at the sort of Baroque writing of the 19th century and the uh, and, and of the early 20th century, too, you know, the people that preceded Hemingway at, after 1900 and, 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 and were also some of his contemporaries, you know, no one was writing the way that Mark Twain was at that point, and no one was writing the way that Hemingway was at that point. Okay, um, Jim, I want to kind of get to the to the biography part. Um, so there's this dichotomy be, between the way Hemingway has been portrayed. Can you take a an element of Hemingway's life which really seems to illustrate these these two sort of polar opposites in the way he's being viewed and give us a sense of, of where the truth may be lying somewhere in the middle? I could try. That would be very hard to do because, uh, you know, if you were looking at Hemingway's life as a sort of sliding scale, uh, you know, it, 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 it oscillated all the time <laughs> between uh, myth and reality, you know, between truth and fiction and so on. And I think that by, you know, the end of his life or near the end of his life, he himself was not even sure what was, you know, what was truth and, and what wasn't. Um, but if I could take one instance of both, certainly an instance, you know, that would portray him sympathetically was the terrible guilt that he felt uh, over uh, leaving and divorcing his first wife, uh, Hadley Richardson, uh, for uh, the woman that he married next, Pauline Pfeiffer. Uh, that, you know, when I was when I finished writing the book and I, I did interviews like this, you know, with different outlets, I was often, you know, asked about that scene as I portrayed it in the book because, um, you know, he, he did feel, you know, overwhelmingly terrible about that. Uh, and uh, he, he felt so badly about it, in fact, that he uh, gave all of the royalties from The Sun Also Rises, his first novel. He gave all of them to Hadley, you know, this is right after he divorced her because he felt so badly about you know, the way he treated her. Uh, and he loved her deeply, but the problem was that he also loved Pauline Pfeiffer, you know, who was 
going to be his second wife. And in his uh, memoirs, later, much, much later in life, 1957, when he's writing a movable feast, which is his sort of, you know, memoir slash, you know, uh, autobiography about life in Paris in the 1920s. Um, in in a in several deleted manuscript passages from that book, that is ones that didn't make it into the the published version after his death. Uh, I read these at the Kennedy Library in Boston, where Hemingway's papers are. And, you know, over and over again, he says something like, you know, I'm sorry about Hadley. I hate that I did that to Hadley, you know, over and over again. So, you know, the, the, you know, the, the guilt certainly stayed with him, you know, uh, for, you know, for quite a while with that. So that, okay. yeah, that's something that I think humanized him in my view. Okay. Uh, to ask a question then, and we'll go into the next segment. Um, what is the character uh, you've read all these bios on Hemingway and, and studied his work. Who is the character that Hemingway created that he felt was the most overlooked or possibly underappreciated? Ooh, that's an interesting question. Uh, I think it would have to be Colonel Robert Cantwell uh, in uh, Across the River and Into the Trees from 1952, I believe it was, or 1953 a novel that uh, has uh, undergone something of a comeback uh, in Hemingway uh, studies the last decade or so, because it was, when it was originally published, it was pilloried by the critics as, you know, being just uh, subpar and, you know, not worthy of Hemingway's talents. Uh, but that character, I think he was, he was writing, you know, uh, a, it was it, uh, the character is a, a person who falls in love with a much younger woman, and of course one of you know Hemingway's great um, uh, troubles you know in life was his inability to you know to love only one person. Uh, he was uh, you know, confounded by this just at every turn. So in the uh, 1940s and 50s, he wrote a number of uh, stories and novels. Some of them weren't published until after his death you know, in which he has a character wrestle with this uh, this problem of multiple, uh, you know, loyalties in terms of love and romance. And uh, that character from Across the River and Into the Trees uh, certainly uh, embodies that. And I, I, I you know, I, I still to this day, I think the novel is uh, sort of uh, unjustly, you know, neglected. But, uh, but as I said, it's been getting a lot more attention recently. Okay. We have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of the show with Jay and Rick. This is ROI, KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. In times of joy, in moments of grief, broadcasters come through even when all else fails. Today, with more ways than ever to experience the moments that transform our lives, Americans still choose broadcast radio and television more than all other media combined. We are the local broadcasters of radio and television, reaching more people, touching more lives. Brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. 
the radio show where the events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. And my name is Rick Sweet. This is the second segment of the show, referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. James Hutchinson, professor of English at the Citadel, and we're talking about his book, Ernest Hemingway, A New Life. Our history buff for today is Ed Broders. Uh, I would like to ask the first question, if I may, Jay, and that yes. is, uh, Hemingway was born in Chicago in the, I think it was 1899, something like that. Uh, how much did his early life impact his, uh, uh, his writing style? Well, uh, he was actually born, he was born in 1899. He was actually born in Oak Park, which you may know is a, is a suburb or sort of bedroom community of, uh, of Chicago. Right. I think today it's about a 20 minute, you know, L ride outside the city. Beautiful place. Uh, also the home of Frank Lloyd Wright, as you might know, the architect. Uh, and so if you go there today, you can see, you know, these beautiful examples of wonderfully preserved uh, Frank Lloyd Wright designed houses. But um, you know, your question of how did Hemingway's early life impact his writing style, I would I would modify a bit to say how did it impact, you know, his you know, his vision of, you know, human nature and his sure. uh, themes sure. and, you know, content of it really didn't, you know, his style really wasn't something that he began to uh, uh, discover until he was first a newspaper reporter in Kansas City. And then later on, when he lived in Paris in the 20s and really, you know, began to hone that style that we think of today as, you know, the terse sort of laconic uh, Hemingway style. What he, uh, but, but, but there's absolutely no question that Oak Park, Illinois, uh, and growing up there for 18 years, uh, absolutely no question that it had a, uh, you know, an impact on his, his consciousness and his, his view of the world. Um, he, he was raised in a very, uh, very rigid, uh, you know, Protestant uh, household. His great line about, uh, about Oak Park is that it was a place of wide lawns and narrow minds. <laughs> so uh, it was, you know, something that he obviously rebelled against, you know, that sort of conventionalism. Um, and, uh, of course, you know, he, he, he ended up, uh, you know, writing about you know, life as it really was, you know, rather than a kind of, uh, you know, old fashioned sort of uh, Thornton Wilder, you know, vision of, of middle America. Uh, this uh, this didn't you know, earn him a lot of friends back home who felt that, of course, like, like Sinclair Lewis and Sherwood Anderson and, you know, many middle American writers that, you know, kind of revolted from, you know, the concepts of, associated with small town life. Now, his mother in particular, you know, was uh, embarrassed and ashamed, you know, when he published The Sun Also Rises. And, you know, it was full of people who were swearing and drinking and sleeping around. Uh, so, so, you know, so certainly he, you know, he, uh, you know, he, his adult life was, was a rebellion against, uh, against his, uh, his boyhood. All right. Ed, do you have a question? Yeah. Um, Jim, you mentioned, uh, earlier in the show that you wrote your, your book because you weren't satisfied with the other biographies about Hemingway that were out there. 
So when one reads your book, um, what will one find that, uh, that is not in these other biographies? Well, uh, hopefully one will find some you know, new tidbits of information. I would never make the claim that there's a lot of new information, precisely you know, uh, because, as everyone says, you know, a lot has been written about Hemingway. But I would claim that you know, the information is uh, interpreted. Uh, in a in a different way or in different several different ways, uh, so you know that's that is primarily how I you know how to respond to that. Some of the emphases of my book, uh, which are not uh, emphases of the other biographies, are uh, his relationships with you know his various wives and lovers, uh, and the way in which he associated these different women with different geographic locales, you know Key West. Paris, uh, Cuba, of course, you know, and so forth. Um, yes. And then may, maybe the most important thing, I guess, that I, I tried to emphasize in the book was was the long history of mental illness and, you know, and de- depression, suicidal depression that ran in Hemingway's family. I mean, you know, there, the, the list of suicides and, you know, his family tree, both before him and after him, are, you know, it's a it's a kind of staggeringly uncomfortable number. And I always felt that, you know, he lived under a great burden um, and that I'm actually, I'm even surprised that he lived as long as long as he did sometimes when I, you know, I think about the anxieties and, and insecurities that he carried, carried around with him. Uh, and many of those, most of those, in fact, were genetic inheritances. So I, uh, I talk a lot about that in the book as well. Um, Jim, that, that kind of mirrors where I was trying, where I was uh, thinking as well. How did his, um, mental state play into the, uh, production of the works that he, that he did? Can we, can we talk about, can we see elements where obviously, um, you know, this kind of theme or this sort of idea plays through over and over and maybe traces back to, to the the uh, the mental problems that he had for most of his life. Oh, that's a great question. It it definitely figures into the stories that he wrote uh, about his fictional alter ego, Nick Adams, the Nick Adams stories, uh, which are set uh, variously in uh, in uh, in Michigan, uh, in the woods in Michigan, and uh, in Italy in World War One, and some of them set uh, in Oak Park or a fictionalized version of Oak Park. Uh, I would probably say that um, you know that that uh, that strand comes through most most uh, most clearly in those those stories uh, in in the kind of the great novels you know that one associates with Hemingway. Let's say the sun also rises, a farewell to arms, for whom the bell tolls, and I guess the novella, the old man and the sea. You know those are very tightly controlled works, and it would be an interesting research project to. You know, to read those through that lens that you just suggested. I myself have never done that because I just have never seen much, you know, trace of evidence of that. Uh, but it would be an interesting thing to pursue. Uh, in the 1940s, uh, which was Hemingway's least, pro- well, I was going to say it was least productive period. It really wasn't. It was the period in which he published the uh, the least amount of writing. But it actually was a very... Uh, frustratingly uh, fecund period for him uh, because he was writing, 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 but he could never 
you know, bring anything that he was writing to uh, to fruition or, or to a, you know, state of, you know, uh, satisfaction that, you know, he, where he wanted to publish it. So all of this work came out uh, after his death. But it's there, I believe, uh, to get to your question in the 19, uh, the writing of the 1940s. It's there that one can see Hemingway really, really grappling with his demons. Uh, and the book that I would, you know, automatically go to to uh, illustrate that for anyone is the posthumously published uh, The Garden of Eden, which came out in 1984. And, I mean, I remember when it came out, and uh, I remember reading the reviews of it and thinking, my gosh, this is absolutely nothing like anything Hemingway wrote before. Jim, that brings up, uh, I hate to d- dwell on the suicides in his family, but his, his father committed a suicide and, you know, being a uh, my father's son, I just wondered, the, it was was there a cloud over him after that? Or uh, you said it's genetic, it's possibly genetic for the number of suicides in the family. But did that death have any any marked impact on, on Ernest? Oh, it, it did absolutely. There's no question in my mind, but that it did hang over him, as you put it. Uh, at the time, it hung over him, and, and for the rest of his life, he he talked about it many many times. He many times referred to how long you know he would he would live before he decided to take his own life. He he knew many suicides other than you know family members, other people who had killed themselves. Uh, you know he talked about them you know and uh, remarked on it, and uh, it was as I said you know almost you know almost a a genetic predisposition uh, to suicide in him as a person. Did he just hang out with suicidal people? Is that the the picture that uh, we're painting here? No, actually it wasn't. Uh, he didn't hang out with suicidal people. It, it's just that there were, you know, there were some people in his life that, you know, that he made a connection with that, you know, that ended up killing themselves. But actually okay. most of the people that he hung out with were kind of, you know, ordinary Joes. I mean, they were, they were not tortured artists or literary types or something like that. So that's interesting. I'd not thought of it before. Maybe he, you know, sought out people who, you know, were, were relatively, uh, you know, carefree and so on as a, as a, uh, you know, an an antidote to his own, uh, you know, sort of uh, demons. Uh, That's interesting. Ed, do you have another question? Yeah, you're you're talking about uh, his demons, as you put it, and being born in 1899, um, you know, psychology and psychiatry would have kind of developed in parallel with his life. Did he ever seek any type of treatment or or try to figure out a way out of all this, all of his his um, mood swings and his depression, or was just alcohol that the self-medication of choice. No, he never did. Uh, and uh, alcohol, you know, was a type of self-medication. But I think, you know, as much as it was that, I think it also was just, you know, part of the uh, the dynamic of the group sport, you know, that, that drinking was, uh, particularly among, you know, writers and intellectuals and celebrities, you know, and the 20s and 30s and so on. I mean, it was, 
more of a sort of an image, you know, thing as much as it was self-medication. He never sought treatment for his depression, though, until it was too late, of course, uh, three years before he took his own life. Um, Kind of along a similar vein, uh, I'm interested in um, today we have, uh, because of social media, we have uh, so much instantaneous feedback that authors get and and there's actually um instances of of authors being humiliated into withdrawing things they were going to publish uh because it was leaked or or whatever and and there was such a backlash um i'm wondering in the press at the time because we're talking about a, a time where there's there's a fair amount of of uh sort of ugly press going around um, how did Hemingway respond to the press that he got either for his books or for his lifestyle? Um, and, and did that have any kind of an effect on this sort of cycle of depression that, that percolated through? You know, that's, that's another superb question. Uh, it, you know, it, it, it had a, it obviously had a huge, you know, huge effect on him. Uh, the, the bad press that he got, uh, you know, really, really angered him, obviously. Uh, and he was a very mercurial, you know, uh, fellow, very volatile personality. So, uh, you know, there there are on record a number of just, you know, outrageous uh, and even funny in some ways outbursts, you know, that, uh, you know, that, that came from bad reviews or, you know, snide comments from, from Scott Fitzgerald or, you know, or one of his peers and so on. Uh, but the the larger question, really, uh, I think that uh, you know that you're asking there is, uh, and it's and it's important in Hemingway's case is you know what about the pressure of celebrity, and uh, there you know the, the pressure was huge, and I think he felt it, uh, you know, every day at least you know after he uh, you know became kind of an overnight sensation with the sun also rises. Uh, it was then that you know he himself. Self-consciously adopted the, uh, the the nickname Papa. I mean, he was, you know, he maybe more than any other American writer in the 20th century. I get, go back to Mark Twain. Mark Twain would be the 19th century equivalent of this. You know, he was very much a uh, uh, a creator, you know, of his own uh, public uh, personality. And once he did it, he had to sustain it. And and that brought, you know, uh, again. Uh, other you know, additional measures of anxieties and and uh, and burdens on him, and at a certain point, uh, I guess you know, in the 1950s or so, when he was, you know, really battling alcohol and demons and so on, he you know he must have realized how hard it was to actually be Ernest Hemingway, you know, at that point, uh, the Ernest Hemingway that he had created and. Uh, you know, and, and sort of put in front of the world. So a lot of pressure. All right. Well, it is customary that we give our guests the last word on our show. So, Jim, why do you think knowing about Ernest Hemingway is relevant in today's world? I think that uh, his his writing style uh, was, was positively revolutionary. And I would be hard-pressed to find a, a major... Uh, you know, writer today in in America or just about anywhere else that was not to some degree uh, influenced by Ernest Hemingway. All right, that's a 
clear and concise answer. <laughs> when when uh, when we come back, we're going to wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University, one hundred six point one FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 377th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zapp Sapital. My name is Jay Swords. And my name is Rick Sweet. We would like to thank our guest, Dr. James Hutchinson, professor of English at the Citadel, who talked with us about his book, Ernest Hemingway, A New Life, the history buff for today's show was Ed Broders. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose or KALA. We would like to wish all listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotsa Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night.